Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, culinary historian Sarah Lohman journeyed across the U.S. to taste some increasingly rare foods and to interview the farmers, activists, and scientists pioneering their resurgence, foods like California's Empress Date, Hawaiian Legacy Sugarcane, and the Carolina African Runner Peanut. They're just a few of the foods on a list of hundreds of endangered items compiled by the group Slow Foods International, which is raising awareness of foods that are vanishing along with their related cultural traditions. Is there a food or dish that you're worried won't be around in a generation or two? Loman's new book is called Endangered Eating. She joins us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Ina Kim. When you think of Coachella, you're probably more likely to think of the music festival than of rare dates, but the dry, hot valley is ideal for growing several unique varieties, like the uh, spicy, sweet Empress date. But demand and production of many of these dates has dwindled, as Sarah Lohman writes, French fries and a monster truck show fit the needs of the Coachella Valley population in the 21st century, more than dates and camel races— The story of the dates is one of several stories about foods and ingredients in danger of disappearing that Lohman shares in her new book, Endangered Eating. And she's with us now. Sarah Lohman, welcome to Forum. Hi, I am so happy to be here today. Well, we are so happy to have you. Congratulations. I understand your book is out today. Yes, this is release day. Uh-huh. So it's it's a very, very exciting day. When you work on a project for five years like this, <laughs> it feels a little surreal when it's finally out in the world. Oh, well, congratulations. Thank and you. I, I really love learning about the Coachella Valley date, not only because it's a California story, mm-hmm. but also because it was heartening to know that I can still try them without, yes. you know, like a ton of effort. Um, but can you describe some of the special varieties you tried and how they're different from dates like the more common medjool date that we're often more familiar with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are also hundreds, if not thousands of varieties of dates across the world. And so it's funny that for the most part in America, we get to experience medjools and deglet noors. Um, medjools and deglet noors, uh, especially the medjools, are very large, very um, kind of uh, wet is not a great descriptor, like soft, juicy, yeah. almost dates. Um, and they're very, very sweet, too. But dates run the whole gamut um, from semi-sweet to really almost savory. There are also dry and semi-dry dates, too. So you can really get an incredible variety of texture and flavor. And in the Coachella Valley, we actually have some of our own unique varieties of dates that are only grown in that area. Um, that's because when the industry was first starting, there a little over a century ago. Many date palms were planted from 
date pits. And when you plant a fruit tree like this from a seed, you don't get a copy of the mother plant. You get a, a combination of the genetics from the mother or the father, essentially, just like, you know, humans. So while a lot of the dates that are grown that way weren't necessarily, didn't have the best texture or flavor from probably hundreds of plants, a few small family farms picked a couple incredible varieties, and many of them are still being grown to this day. You've got kind of caramely, chewy, blonde beauty dates. Um, you've got the spicy sweet empress, as you mentioned. And there's even a few dates uh, that I couldn't find when I did my research, like TR dates, um, originally called Teddy Rose Third Row, I think, and then changed to Teddy Roosevelt, now just called TR. And <laughs> there is sort of a new kid on the, one of the newer kids on the block, uh, Rancho Maluk Miladuco dates, um, is a sort of a new small farm, and they've been able to track down cuttings of this plant, and they're growing it again. So they're actually releasing an, an, a heritage date box for the holidays where you'll get to be able to try a lot of these old, unusual varieties. Yeah, that's really cool. How did Coachella Valley come to be the place to try to grow these dates and what kinds of sort of cultural, yeah. you know, traditions, events sort of developed around them? Yeah, yeah. The history is a little complicated looking at it through 21st century eyes. So around the turn of the 20th century, there was this group of scientists at the USDA who dubbed themselves the uh, food explorers. And they went all around the world looking for different plants, either new varieties of crops already grown in the United States or new varieties to the United States, new crops to the United States uh, that could be grown and they thought would turn a profit. So it was really this idea of every square patch of quote-unquote usable land should be used to grow crops and be profitable. And so one of the areas they were looking at was the Coachella Valley, which although there were indigenous people happily living there, the United States government saw that area as undeveloped because there was no industry. Mm. So they realized that the climate of the Coachella Valley, very hot, very dry, but with groundwater, is very similar to the Arabian Peninsula, where dates come from. So these food explorers, they traveled the world. They went to Northern Africa, to Southeast Asia, and to the Arabian Peninsula, collected date varieties, both in terms of suckers, which are sort of the, the, the offshoot of a date palm that you can plant, and actual dates and date pits. Um, the government sort of funded the grow-out, funded people to move to the Coachella Valley, and that's how the Coachella Valley first began to be populated with white ranchers in terms of starting the state industry. And in terms of these celebrations that came up around it, I mean, as you know, California is a place that always likes to create fantasy, create travel <laughs> without living, leaving the state, right? Not just yes. Hollywood. Nice yeah. Right, right, right. It's, you know, there's actually kind of a special name for it. It's called the Spanish Fantasy Pass. This was a concept taught to me by my, my colleague, um, Sarah C. Cates at Delta College. And the term comes from the idea of this recreated sort of um, colonized Spanish history where everybody was happy about it. It was actually good for the Native people there. You know, it's something pretty common if you go to visit like any sort of mission sites in California. But that sort of concept applies to, you know, to Disneyland, to Hollywood, and the Coachella Valley's take on it was they created a Middle Eastern fantasy there. So the date gardens often had themes. Um, and again, you know, it was, it was this idea of like Orientalism. So the East was anywhere from North Africa to Japan. So it was a pretty like wide <laughs> cast net. But like there was a date shop in the shape of a pyramid. There was one that had like a nomadic 
Arabic tent from the Arabian Peninsula. And then there was the annual festival, the International Date Festival and County Fair, which still runs to this day um, in a pavilion built by actually a scenic designer from Hollywood to look, again, like this sort of mashup of, of... Arabian Peninsula ideas. And there were costumes and cultural appropriation and um, a little bit like Halloween. Like you see these photos of women in the 50s in these sort of like harem outfits that are a little scandalous. But it was this idea of play like, oh, these are good girls. They're not really bad girls. But it also represented a simplified idea of the Middle East. Yeah, it's just so fascinating to think about all of this in Coachella Valley. And of course, these dates, the reason that you pursue them is because they appear on this list that you described by Slow Foods International called the Ark of Taste. Um, Mm -hmm. So which describes itself as a living catalog of delicious and distinctive foods facing extinction. But I'm just curious, what are the criteria to make it on this list? If you could just give us an quick overview. Sure. I mean, it is a little flexible, and it certainly had to grow because uh, Slow Food was started in Italy, and so many of the foods that they were onboarding, that's sort of their word for it, were regional traditions that had existed in the same spot for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And while we do have those foods here in America, we're also such a, a nation of immigration and migration that the rules had to change for us. You know, foods come here, and then they change and become some Something new, so we have to recognize those traditions as well. So they say that they want foods that are delicious and distinctive, are good is the bigger way they describe it, <laughs> as well as clean, that they can be raised in a way that is uh, doesn't uh, damage the environment, that they're also fair too, and that anyone could have access to them, anyone can grow them, they're not a copyrighted food. Um, and rare, you know, whether they are a crop, an animal, uh, a wild animal, or a foraged plant. They have to be both very special to a particular community, very local in some cases, or a needing of protection. Yeah. And so what happened in Coachella Valley for these dates to now be deemed as facing extinction, it, facing yeah. extinction as endangered, essentially? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are really two elements to it. One is that these suckers that you need to cut and plant to create a copy, a genetic copy of the tree with the traits that you like, um, those only grow off palm trees for about 20 or 25 years. So if you've got an older variety that has grown out and it's uh, not growing those offshoots anymore, then you can't plant those date seeds. The date seeds will be, it has different genetic material. It's a different tree. So with dates in particular, there is a pretty short window where if you miss the opportunity to get those cuttings, that variety cannot be replicated. And that is happening because, you know, these date gardens started as small family farms at the turn of the 20th century. And in the second and third generations, those inheritors didn't necessarily want to carry on that farming. Farming is tough. It is an industry with a very narrow margin of success, and there's so much that is not under control. So a lot of the smaller family farms growing unique varieties have been sold to larger companies like Dole to grow things like Medjool's and Deglet Noors. Um, mm. But 
it's changing. Like the pleasure of being able to write this book is now I've connected with not just some of the old farms like Shields and Oasis State Gardens that have been in operation since at least the middle of the century, but also there are new growers. I mentioned Rancho Maladuco dates, and I also write about Sam Cobb, who Mm -hmm. not only is propagating these old varieties of dates, but he has created some new ones too, which I think is so great. So, you know, it's this, it's bringing awareness because it's so easy to support a date farmer like Sam Cobb, get on his website, buy some dates, that's it. That's (laughs) all you need to do. We're coming up on a break, but can you describe quickly how he came to grow what he calls his black gold date? (laughs) Yeah, it's so funny. I mean, he uh, has two degrees in agriculture, as he will tell you, and he thought he was starting a landscaping business. I mean, look, you got to look around you in California, where I live in Las Vegas. Generally, there's two types of palm trees planted. There are fan palms, which are a native Mojave palm, and then the other ones are date palms. They have very long, narrow fronds, and to me, they look very biblical. I definitely associate them uh, with the Arabian Peninsula, too. Um, And so he just started collecting trees, thinking he's going to grow them, you know, not for food. But then he started realizing he didn't really know what varieties he was collecting. And sometimes it would be maybe a date pit that someone had thrown out their car and sprouted into a tree. And that is exactly how you get new varieties of dates. So he collected a bunch of dates, started trying some, and then realized that, in his own words, he was growing some really good dates. One of the ones that he kind of found in his collection of palm trees that he collected um, was his black gold date, and that's one of his unique varieties. Yeah, and it's sweet because he's saying that he's continuing his family legacy of his dad, or his grandfather, I think, who'd, you know, farmed 240 acres with mules in Mississippi. Yes, uh, three generations, and his dad and his brother still farms part of that land in Mississippi, too. Yeah. We're talking with Sarah Lohman, a culinary historian, about America's vanishing foods, and we'll have more with her after the break. Stay with us. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about foods native to the U.S. that are disappearing, like once bountiful varieties of date in the Coachella Valley. And in fact, the sister Michael tweets, a startling revelation. Although I have been to the Shields date gardens in Indio, I never realized it was in the Coachella Valley. They interplant the palms with citrus trees. We're learning all about this with Sarah Lohman, a culinary historian and author. 
author of Endangered Eating, America's Vanishing Food. You might also know Sarah from uh, Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine, which is also her previous publication. And you can join the conversation with your questions or comments. Curious listeners, if there is a food item or dish that you worry won't be around in a generation or two, um, or a food or dish that's prized in your community for its particularly special taste or cultural significance. You can email forum at kqed.org, find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can also ask your questions for Sarah about finding or preserving rare foods. You did mention, Sarah, that, you know, they're going to do this heritage um package that you can try a lot of these different dates. And I mean, that is sort of part of Slow Food International's Mm -hmm. proposed solution, right? Like to save these foods, eat these foods, you know, (laughs) so that demand for these foods will grow and so Mm -hmm. on. Tell us Mm -hmm. more about why they see that as a solution. Yeah, that's exactly it. Eat it to save it. That, um, you know, when you're ordering a box of dates from Sam or Shields, you know, you are making sure that this crop sells out. And that encourages those farmers to continue planting more of these dates and grow them. And so I think that that is sort of the best idea when it comes to different crops, whether that's, you know, fruit trees or heirloom corn. There's also, of course, seed-saving organizations that allow you to plant some of these rare varieties in your own backyard, and sometimes that's the best way to keep food alive. But it's also an idea that doesn't work across the board, because especially with wild wild foods, sometimes we have to save it to eat it, and that is a a totally different way of looking at things. Um, Are there dates, date varieties that are already lost? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I looked at sort of a, a USDA bulletin from the turn of the century that, you know, mentioned dozens of unique American varieties of dates. And, you know, as far as looking at the arc of taste, there's perhaps six on there. And, um, you know, now we've got new date varieties coming out. But, you know, I don't even know if I can say if the ones mentioned in this bulletin were just, you know, maybe not that good or difficult to grow or disappeared for other reasons, or if they just were amazing and they sort of faded out with these family farms. It's really, really hard to say. It's um, it's hard to know what we've lost, and it's hard to know if we've completely lost things. Because yeah. certainly I've read some amazing stories of rediscoveries of different plants as well. Yeah. Will you talk about one of those? Because that's what I also wondered, right? Yeah. Like yeah. maybe the the sweet desert dew or the foggy skin smoky is somewhere still out there, but it's just waiting to be rediscovered. Yeah. <laughs> because the story of the Carolina African runner peanut made me think like yeah. anything is possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's true. And of course, the things with the dates, those we, we might find that tree, but not be able to propagate it, yes. which is very, very sad. Um, there's the runner peanut. And also, too, I just wanted to mention, you know, my apples chapter two. Luckily, right. you know, heritage apple trees can live 200 years and still um, be sending off new growth for cuttings. And so with the cider revival that's happening right now, there's a lot of interest in figuring out where are these cider apple varieties that really haven't been used in 100 years. And there's been some incredible successes with um, both apple hunters looking at old maps and walking old orchards and also putting out one 
wanted posters with 19th century drawings and saying, have you seen this apple? And I recount the stories of two rediscoveries in the book, the Harrison and the Povishan, which are, are both pretty incredible. And as far as the uh, Carolina Runner peanut, this was North America's first peanut. Uh, peanuts are from uh, South America, but uh, they went east in the Colombian Exchange. They were a very successful crop in Africa, and then they were brought back to America on boats with trafficked Africans and primarily grown in the gardens of the enslaved as a kind of a food from home. But it became a big cash crop in the 19th century, but they, they're known as being extremely flavorful. They have excellent oil. They're like the most peanutty peanut you've ever had, but they're very small. And so they're difficult. They were difficult to pick by hand and impossible to harvest by machine. So by the 30s, they weren't planted anymore. And very quickly, they were thought to be extinct, gone. So the story goes that the creator of Anson Mills, which uh, is a mill in South Carolina that, uh, well, basically the founder was looking to find the whole, not just grains, but what they're calling the Carolina Rice Kitchen, all mm. of the ingredients that made up the cuisine of the Carolina Low Country. And he charged this to David Shields, a food historian, and David basically both had to make a list of what was missing, which is exactly what I was talking about. It's hard to know what's gone and then try to find it. He spent 20 years on this project, and one of the ones he thought was gone for good were the Carolina Runners. And then, you know, someone gave him a, a hot tip, I guess, and he called uh, a university in North Carolina who had seed storage and asked if they had Carolina Runners. He said there was a pause. They said, let me check. They came back and said, yes, we have 20. So they sent 10, I mean, 20 single peanuts, right? So they sent half of those to David Shields, who one of the USDA extension research stations grew them out and they did grow. They put them in the ground and they grew and they basically spent five years generating seed. So now there are at least one million of these peanuts left in the world. But, you know, that's the beginning of the recovery, but there's so much more that needs to happen for food to enter um, our foodscape again. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about why it matters so much to try to save these disappearing foods? What it is that you feel like is really important to understand? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that there are two different sides to that. One is the one that you will hear, um, which is the one that maybe gets funding, <laughs> and that is we need to we need to keep genetic diversity because a lot of our plants are clones. That's how they propagate, and we, you know, if there are blights and with climate change, we need the genetic diversity to be able to breed it back into our crops. I think that what that idea misses is that many of these foods are extremely extremely culturally important. Uh, more than half the book talks about foods that belong to indigenous communities. So for them, this is not about preserving genetic diversity. It's about preserving their own food and their culture. And I think that everyone has a right to that. They have mm -hmm. a right to grow their food that's connected to their history. And I think that, um, especially for those of us outside of indigenous communities, we should really support that without there needing to be a bigger reason and beyond that. Well, we're talking with Sarah Loman and with you, our listeners who are weighing in with your thoughts about America's vanishing foods, foods that you are worried might not be around in a generation or two, or ways to try to support 
the preservation of vanishing foods. Ron writes, in Baja California's mountain valleys, I ate small yellow dates while riding through a canyon. The guides would use them as snacks. James writes, I have heard the date palms need 100 days of 100 degrees or above to fruit properly, as it usually is in Coachella Valley. True? Yes, absolutely true. 100 days over 100 degrees. So, you know, it is sort of interesting that a lot of the plants that I looked at are perfectly happy with the temperature change with with climate change. Uh, The date palms are loving it. The bigger issue with climate change is water, of course. They are a very thirsty crop. And as far as those yellow dates, those were uh, yellow barhees. Barhee dates are a date that you can both eat fully ripe. That's when the date is sort of dry and the sugars are very developed. But actually, you can eat them fresh at their freshest stage. They're very crunchy and astringent and tannic. And then they sort of change and sweeten over time. That's a crop that's traditionally eaten in date-growing regions. But it really wasn't a part of our American food landscape until more immigrants came here from places like Egypt. Egypt and the Arabian Peninsula and said, why are we eating these barkies? You know, so it was sort of a relearning um, and a re-exploration of uh, now one of our native crops. Well, let me go to caller George in San Jose. George, you're on. Oh, hi. How has uh, date availability been affected by the COVID pandemic? I, I used to buy mm. uh, dates at my retail greengrocer, 10-pound box for $25 before the pandemic. During, mm-hmm. the, pandem- during the pandemic, they went up to $50. Uh, mm. Like in overnight, and then then soon after that, I couldn't get them at all. Mm. You know, I suspect that those are dates coming internationally. We import about as many dates as we grow domestically. So judging by those prices, um, I'm going to assume that the effect is happening because our whole global economy has been affected, transportation's been affected, the price of growing everything has been affected. Um, we're still very much in cover in recovery as a planet from the COVID-19 crisis. So I would think it actually, it probably is going to be advantageous of you to go online and order directly from these small date farms. You're supporting, supporting a small date farmer, it's definitely going to be cheaper than what you're paying for those dates, and you're going to get to taste some very unique varieties too. Well, this listener writes, is there any funding available from government or nonprofits to subsidize farms that are growing these disappearing crops so they will be able to continue to grow them? Who knows? Maybe down the road, the foods will be rediscovered and become profitable again. You know, that is a wonderful question, and that is a bigger issue that I address in the book, because currently the main idea of preserving these rare heirlooms um, is you grow them out and sell them to chefs. And I ended up finding that very frustrating. I'll give you two examples, though. Um, I visited John Sharp at the Turquoise Room in Winslow, Arizona, and he was working directly with uh, Latin and indigenous shepherds to buy Navajo churro meat. This is a sheep variety that has really sweet and delicious meat. And so it's feels very insurmountable in some ways, but he also was doing advocation to I mean, it's it's just there's so many logistical difficulties to getting the animals or the meat out of the reservation. And so one of the proposed ideas is a mobile slaughterhouse, which hasn't happened yet. But I believe it's the USDA has created a grant system to support um, indigenous basically meat eating systems and support things like mobile slaughterhouses. So we might be seeing a change. So in a way, I think that that's an awesome way to do it. He's working directly with the producers in who are 
are culturally tied to these foods. I got very frustrated in the Carolina Runner Peanut chapter because I met a farmer named Nat Bradford who specializes in growing out heirlooms. And I mean, his story is just amazing, too, because now that this has become his job, he'll get these old timers, as he describes them, you know, handing him a packet of seeds from deep freeze saying, this is my family's okra. And it, Nat takes it on to try to put that in the seed in the soil that maybe hasn't seen the light of day in 70 years and growing out to see what happens. That being said, with something like a peanut, it's there's specialized harvesting equipment involved, and he's got to do everything by hand. He's got to he's got to hire labor. That means these peanuts at this point are selling for ten dollars a pound. When you know you can get a, a Virginia peanut or our big circus peanuts for four, three, two dollars or less. Um, and so only high-end chefs can afford to buy them, which means honestly, this traditionally African American crop is largely being uh, serve to wealthy white diners. And like that doesn't jive for me, right? Like that's not the way to do it. And so his ask really was like, there needs to be more support for farmers interested in investing in um, heritage crops, heirloom crops, but especially if this is a crop that comes from somebody's, you know, own cultural heritage too. I think we need to think about the whole structures. And I think that we need to first prioritize the repatriation of uh, rediscovered and regrown foods. And then I think from that, um, we will be surprised when these foods, you know, grow and become profitable. Um, and just a more holistic look at the system that I think would start with more grants and more funding being available from both the government, not-for-profits, and private industry. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about the Navajo churro sheep that you mentioned, because, of course, there are not just fruits and vegetables on this. There are other animals, endangered foods that are, in fact, livestock. And also mm -hmm. because this one has and touches on a lot of the things that you're talking about, part of the reason that it is endangered is because of anti-Indigenous racism that Correct. attempted to exterminate these sheep. So can, can you tell the story of the Navajo churro sheep? Yeah, and more broadly, um, removing, you know, we know about removing the American government removed indigenous people from their land, right? We saw that again and again and again, most famously with the Trail of Tears. But for the Navajo or the Diné people, they too were removed to a reservation before they were able to return to their homeland. And that's not just about, um, you know, we're moving you because we want this land. It was also about colonization yeah. uh, and assimilation. Because when you move someone from their ancestral lands, you're also breaking ties to their, to their food. Foods, um, to not only the wild foods, but the climate and uh, terrain where certain foods can be grown or hunted. And then the U.S. government would, quote unquote, help by providing these, these migrants with things like pork and white flour and coffee quote-unquote American foods. I have to say quote-unquote because you can't see my square quotes on the, on the radio. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but, you know, but basically saying your way of life is not acceptable. This is the only way we can you can live. And so because the Diné people were returned to their homeland, they did were able to have this stronger tie with the Navajo churro. Now, sheep did, uh, uh, domesticated sheep came to America very early with some of the earliest Spanish colonists. Um, the exact sort of breeding heritage of the Navajo churro is, is too far back in time to know, but they have been a Navajo animal for hundreds of years and are very specially acclimated to the climate and ter 
terrain of the Southwest. So um, the American government basically stepped in on two different occasions in the 1860s and the 1930s to say, you can't have these sheep. It's ruining the land. You need to raise more profitable animals. And twice created this sort of mass extermination of not just this financially important animal to the Navajo, but this culturally important animal. Mm-hmm. And to this day, cattle ranching is seen as a more surefire, profitable way to live. But there are definitely indigenous people pushing back, both within Navajo culture and against the federal government, too, to say we want to preserve the traditional pastoral lifestyle of uh, the animals. If anyone's on Instagram, um, a great follow is Navajo Shepherd. Um, uh, they uh, live near the Four Corners region, and their sheep are just incredibly beautiful. And they are a weaver. So uh, they also run, I believe it's called the Rainbow, Rainbow Fiber Co-op, too, where you can buy uh, Navajo churro wood directly from um, shepherds. And in addition to their meat being delicious, the animal's wool is unparalleled for hand weaving. It's beautiful yarn. And there's some with like even four horns or yeah, six that's horns? I mean they're just such beautiful, beautiful animals too. In addition to their unusually long um, uh, wool, uh, they are known as polycyrate, and polycyrate have more than two horns. There's a mate, there's less than half a dozen uh, sheep like this in the world. So um, you can have a four-horned ram is especially prized because the number four is very important within Diné culture. Um, the homeland sits between four sacred mountains, but you can even have a ram that has six or even eight horns, although I've never seen one. Amazing. And the population is, I guess, quote unquote, stable. Because the population of, yeah. is stable. Yeah. And that is that is a result of basically three different things, slow food, but also the Livestock Conservancy, which is a program that specifically focuses on animals, and then also organizations um, within the Navajo Nation. So there is a Navajo Tro Presidium within Slow Food, and these are sort of special collaborations created uh, for extremely culturally important food items. And um, there's also Sheep is Life within the Navajo community. And so basically these organizations are doing exactly what that one listener asked. They're providing not just funding, but also training and resources and aid and question answering services, you know, all the support you need. You can't just hand someone a sheep and say, go, you know, if you want to get back into shepherding, especially when there's been so much lost knowledge, you need support. Sarah Lohman interviewed the farmers, the communities, the scientists pioneering the resurgence of special rare foods, and we're learning about them. Stay with us. We'll have more on Forum. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. 
Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about foods native to the U.S. that are disappearing or have disappeared, like once bountiful varieties of date in California. We're also talking about food traditions that are in danger of vanishing with Sarah Lohman, who's written a book called Endangered Eating, America's Vanishing Food. Sarah is a food historian, and you, our listeners, are joining the conversation as well. What's a food item or ingredient you enjoyed as a kid that you're seeing less often or you're worried won't be around in a generation or two or one that's really prized in your community for its special taste or cultural significance that maybe is becoming harder to get or make what is a way that you have found to try to keep some of these rare foods in demand either by buying it or growing it or or eating it eat it to save it is the arc of taste recommendation from slow foods international you can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord. We're at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. The sister Sarah writes, when I came to San Francisco in 1968, Pippins were my first introduction to tart green apples. In 1971, I went to Toronto and encountered Granny Smith and fell in love. But I'd never fallen out of love with Pippins. And when Granny Smith appeared out here, I never saw Pippins again. Why? Is there somewhere they are sold? Hmm. What can you tell us, Sarah Loman, about Pippins? Well, I'd actually need more information because Pippins are just the name for an apple variety that was originally grown from a seed. So one example is I'm coming at you from New York City today, and one of our local apples is called the Newtown Pippin. It's an apple that originated in Queens, and it grew from an orchard that was entirely planted by seed. So it's hard to say. There are Pippins out there that don't have Pippin included in their name. There are tart green apples out there that uh, are not Pippins at all. They're, you know, grown in different ways. They're grown from cuttings. They're um, bred in, in other ways, too. So it's that is just a, a term for an apple grown from a seed. Now, I will say that um, a lot of, just like planting dates, from seed, usually about 90% of pippins are not good eating apples, but they were in historical America used for cider. And that's part of the reason, too, that a lot of the cider apples have gone extinct because plucked off the tree when you bite into it, it is too sour or too tannic or mealy textured and doesn't really meet our standards for an apple that we want to eat. But press, they make really good cider. So hard to say. This was some variety of apple that has another name. And if you can figure out what that name was, I think we should be able to find it. Doesn't Martinelli's use the Newtown Pippin? They do. Isn't that so wonderful? <laughs> so Martinelli. I mean, I, this, I think it was my favorite thing I learned because I had Martinelli's in my house growing up at all yep. the holidays. <laughs> so Newtown Pippins is one of these. Vi- I mean, it's an old apple, probably late 17th century. It was first grown, um, v- became very popular worldwide. And although it's not a common name that you would hear today, um, it, it hasn't it didn't go through that phase of uh, nearing total extinction that other traditional varieties did in part because Martinelli's Sparkling Cider uses it. It's the major apple in their blend for their, their non-alcoholic table cider. So out in here in California, they uh, pay a premium to make sure that orchardists continue to put it in the ground. And I just love that. Yeah, very cool. Let me go to caller Jim in Santa Clara next. Hi, Jim, you're on. Thanks. Uh, you know, uh, I had Newton, Newton Pippin some cuttings from a neighbor and grafted them on my tree. Just wanted, uh, uh, 
hard to make a better pie than with a new pound pound yes. pippin. I uh, just wanted to put in a word for California rare fruit growers, crfg.org. It's a nonprofit group of hobbyists who get together and try to keep growing unusual rare varieties of things. Uh, they have an annual science swap at their various chapters. So I had gotten some, up to about 30 varieties of apples on my trees. I had about three trees with about 30 grafts on there, and it was really nice to have unusual varieties like Cornish gilliflower or you know, winter mm-hmm. banana or some of these other ones. Um, unfortunately, my trees got taken out by oak root fungus, but mm-hmm. uh, might want to check yep. out that uh, organization because they're, they're preserving lots of varieties. There used to be some 15,000 varieties of apples. Now there's probably about 1,500 that are still available, but um, mm. yeah, a group well, like that is keeping it going. Well, Jim, it's thanks actually, for the plug. Yeah, go it's ahead, even Sarah. more extreme. It's about fourteen thousand, and there are now there were fourteen thousand apples uh, listed in USDA USDA bulletin just after the turn of the twentieth century, and now there are about a hundred varieties grown commercially. So, they although we consider apples common, they are one of our most endangered crops. But I love the sound of this organization. Um, I think that especially people in California should check it out because I think it's super fun. I now have a rare citrus tree, the Dancy Orange, growing in my backyard um, because part of keeping these species alive is just putting them in the ground. And last thing, too, uh, another reason I'm a huge fan of the Newtown Pippin is that they survive because they weren't just a good cider apple. They are a great eating apple and baking apple. Their sugars develop after storage, so they can also sit for a long time, too, in a cold space and get even better tasting. They're just a really cool apple, and I have a special love for them. Well, let me go next to Cece in Mountain View. Cece, you're on. Hi. Um, when I was a teenager in the 70s, I worked at a fruit stand, and the, my, the favorite fruit I, of mine there was the Duarte plum, hmm. but I haven't seen it. I think, it's, I think it was grown in the Santa Clara Valley, <clears throat> but I haven't seen it in decades. That is... And that's fascinating to me. I actually just picked up my phone because I'm curious if maybe the Duarte plum is on the Ark of Taste. And if it isn't, um, you can submit. The our uh, Slow Foods has local chapters of the Ark of Taste. So there is one, uh, there's a statewide one for California and I think the coastal west. Um, but also there are local city organizations too and even college organizations. Um, so if it is something that is delicious and, uh, you know, endangered, it can be submitted as well. I'm just sort of looking online because I'm, I'm curious. Oh, it is a really old variety. I'm looking at a really old old illustration too um and um it looks like you can buy trees but it is much harder to find in commercial growers i mean usually what happens is that there despite something be delish being really delicious there is something that comes along that is either easier to grow or more commonly looks better again air quotes Hmm. um because you know as the commercial grocery industry arose 
are the the what am I trying to say the the, the metrics for picking out the the best fruit um, all has to do with appearance. That's what the grocery store chains were asking for, and that's how we ended up with something like the Red Delicious Apple because it's a good looking apple, even though I think it's pretty universally agreed it doesn't taste very good. And now that's finally shifting, even in the small thing that the the Gala Apple or the Gala Apple is now America's number one apple, displacing Red Delicious. The people are choosing taste over this appearance, this idea of what an apple or a plum should look like. Mm. So, well, I, you know, thank you for putting that name out there because that means that people listening are, are going to be, it's going to be on their radar, which means they're going to look for it. And then when they see it, they're going to buy it and try it. And that's what this is all about. It's more about creating awareness that for me, now I see the world like totally differently. I'm just more tuned into these different foods and get more excited about trying these often highly local foods, whether it's a, a plum or a, a sheep, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, speaking of the sort of apples and, and various things that people miss and want to try, the sister writes, I haven't seen a wine sap or Jonathan apple since I left Michigan in the 50s. I miss oh, them. Oh, Sure. Yeah, I mean, the thing, too, about apples is that they are very, very regional in terms of where they're happy and grow the best. So even though we don't think of that because of this national grocery system, um, you know, a Jana sap, I could be wrong on that, but I do think that a wine sap and a Jana gold, I, I think the Jana gold is like an Ohio apple. Mm, so it's like happiest in the Midwest. Yeah. And the two I write about in the in the book, I, I wrote about the Newtown Pippin, but the Harrison and the Povishon are Newark apples. The Harrison is grown coast to coast, but it's always happiest close to Newark. So they're very, very highly adapted to different regions. So you just got to come back to the Midwest and visit to get those apples. Well, you know, in addition to fruits, vegetables, livestock, you also write about techniques that are in danger. And I do want to yeah. ask you before you go about reef net fishing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Describe it for us and, and why it is just so central and in danger of dying out. So reef net fishing is from the Pacific Northwest. It's specific to the Salish people who are around the Salish Sea. That's sort of the northernmost part of the Puget Sound that's on the border with Canada. And the Salish, the Salish people existed before Canada and the United States. So it crosses that international boundary today. Unlike other forms of fishing, it is, it, it happens out in the open sea, but it is two stationary platforms uh, or historically two stationary anchored canoes. And between those two platforms or canoes is strung a net. The net on one side is attached to the canoes and it's at the surface of the water. And on the what, what they call the upstream side, basically the currents in the Salish Sea flow like a river, it's anchored to the bottom of the ocean. And so it creates this funnel, this ramp where salmon, schooling salmon who are heading from the open ocean into their breeding grounds in fresh water, they are... They are swimming along the bottom of the ocean, and then they come across this net, which is usually decorated in a way that it still looks like the bottom of the sound. They swim up this watery ramp and then directly into the nets of the fishers. And literally, it's a spotter, a human being looking down into the water that sees the school of salmon coming, sounds the cry, and then the net is picked up and the fish are hauled on board. Now, this was invented probably 10,000 years ago, one of the many many, many, many fishing techniques created by the people of the Pacific Northwest. It's ingenious. It's unlike any other fishing technique in the world. 
And it is really important right now because there are species of salmon that are very near extinction. And because the fish are hauled on board live and unhurt and put into a live well, they can be sorted. So when I worked on a reef net gear, we were fishing for pink salmons, but every once in a while, a king salmon got in there and all we had to do was cradle our arms, lift them out, throw them back in the water, and they went on their way to, to go to their spawning grounds. It produces delicious tasting fish that aren't bruised, aren't harmed in, in any way, uh, that the flesh tastes the best, they calm down. Um, so you're not getting uh, the sort of off-tasting, off stressed out fish tastes bad, essentially. Stressed out salmon tastes bad. Um, and it's also protecting species of salmon that need to be protected. It's brilliant. Well, let me remind listeners, we are talking about Endangered Eating, America's Vanishing Foods with Sarah Lohman, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Travis in Napa next. Hi, Travis, you're on. Hi, thank you. Yeah, I remember reading as a child in elementary school about varieties of pomegranates that were grown here in California mm -hmm. before World War II by all the, the Japanese immigrants. And then yeah, after forced internment and seizure of their lands, a lot of those mm -hmm. varieties were lost. Um, mm -hmm. And I was just curious what happened to a lot of those varieties. You know, that's really interesting. I don't know the whole story. I've only come across it interestingly because I was researching a history of grenadine. And so I was trying to figure out when we mm. started growing pomegranates, because even though grenadine, um, for the most part, is made from like sugar and red food coloring and citric acid, it's supposed to be made from pomegranate juice. Um, yeah, you know, and the question I don't know is if those pomegranate varieties were unique to America, or more likely they were brought from other places. Um, and you know, I mean, you you summed up the story exactly right, and it's exact type of story that I was drawn to in my book where, you know, foods often just don't disappear. There's a reason. And in this case, uh, it's hard to know what we have lost when we intern so many United States citizens um, of Japanese uh, heritage during World War II. So I can't speak to that, but that's a fascinating story I'm going to look into. Well, I'm curious what your thoughts on this comment from Martine, who writes, I'm skeptical about appending the description endangered to a fruit that was imported as a way to put the desert to agricultural use, talking about the dates, and which was part of a larger USDA mission to diversify our fruit growing industry by bringing plants from other places to better exploit our climate. I mean, some of that is absolutely, you know, bang on. We talked about it at the, the top of this show, that it's really this colonial idea that if uh, something isn't being grown on the land or if it's not being used for profit, then it's uh, unused land, which is ridiculous. The endangered in this case is an appellate that we are um, putting on not the Medjool or the Douglas Nord dates, but we're putting on the date varieties that were grown here that are, are unique to here. Because I mentioned two when you plant a date pit, it has different genetic information from the parents. And so those early farmers planted fields of date pits to see what would come out of it. And then from those, selected some truly amazing trees. And it's, of course, very hard. You know, we could say, well, we shouldn't, this isn't an American crop. It's not indigenous to here. But does that mean that we should 
only and celebrate indigenous cultures in America? Should we also erase the hundreds hundreds of years of uh, immigration and the new traditions that were born here by the combinations of different heritages and families and languages and knowledges? Should we erase the history of Black Americans who brought incredible ag- agricultural knowledge from West Africa and created new food traditions and crops here too? I don't think so. I think that these are all these are all part of what um, uh, are called the braid. Uh, this is a term created by food historian Jessica Harris, and it talks to the idea of American foodways being this braid of European colonialism, indigenous ingredients, uh, and Black American and African culture. I'd even add a fourth strand in there of immigrant and migrant culture too. These are all part of America's story now, and so I think we have to respect all of them. Well, Paul on Instagram writes, are there any crops that your guests would recommend that we should quit mass producing due to climate change and drought issues? Ooh. Oh, that's such a big question. Yeah. And we only um, have a minute or so, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can't point to any one crop to say we should stop growing this thing. Um, I think that the more important things that we have to think about right now, I mean, again, it's in terms of plants, it's water, not heat. And water is certainly a big issue in places like Southern California. But in places where I grew up, like the Midwest, it is very rainy. You know, there's (laughs) now living in the desert when I come back east, I'm like, oh, my God, it just comes out of the sky. This is amazing. (laughs) Um, So, you know, it's there are there's a lot of nuance to it. I think it's also just more important to make sure that everybody has access to affordable and healthy food, um, that currently our system places morality on eating a variety of foods, going to our farmer's market. But of course, that has a lot to do with money and physical access, and not everybody has that. Plus, when I was growing up, you got corn from the corn guy down the street, and I didn't think about it as going to the farmer's market. You know, growing up rural, it's a different lifestyle. So I think that we just have to not prescribe the same morality and lifestyle to everybody in every situation. And um, I think that eating local is important, and I'll close on this idea, not in that everybody should only eat locally produced foods. That's ridiculous. I'm not going to give up bananas. And also, it is thrilling to me to be able to go online and buy, buy real wild rice and that has been harvested by indigenous people in the upper Midwest. And I think you should do that too. That, you know, do it, support those people. But I also think that there is a real joy in exploring both where you live and when you travel, what that local food culture is, seeing it, appreciating it, eating it, participating in it. And I think that you will also find some cultural communication that happens over food that you don't normally get access to as a tourist. Well, let me end with some of the foods that our listeners want to celebrate. The sister writes, jujubes are a fruit I've never even heard of until I encountered them while volunteering in a food kitchen. The way I describe them is similar to a cross between a plum and a fig. Carrie writes, I miss California apricots. Dried Blenheim apricots were a favorite childhood snack. And Lucy wants everybody to know that Dave Hale, a small-scale apple farmer and Sebastopol is an apple genius. He sells around 40 varieties of apples, including Belle de Bocou. He sells Pippin and also cider made from pink pearls. He also sells wine saps and John of Gold. So the listener does not have to go to Ohio to find them. Sarah Lohman, thank you so much. And thank you, listeners. This is Forum. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.